Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Heather, why don't you just go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do. I'm Heather Vogel. I'm a reporter with ProPublica, and I've been investigating the rental market for the last year. Heather owns a home now, one that she bought in 2019. But before that, she'd both rented and owned. When you were a renter, did you ever give thought to, like, how your rent was calculated? No, I, you know, I never would have suspected that there was any type of sort of big data being used to come up with these prices. I always just assumed it was some leasing agent saying, hmm, I think we can, you know, the market's pretty good. I think we can go up a little bit more or whatever. But um, yeah, this was a complete surprise to me. The surprise is what Heather has been investigating. It's the use of algorithms to set and increase rental prices at apartments owned by some of the biggest management companies in the country. It was something she stumbled on while reporting a story on private equity firms in the housing market. A tenant in Seattle emailed her because he was shocked by his own rent increases. He'd been a loan broker and a bank examiner, so he knew the world of real estate and finance. He, on his own, just started poking around in Seattle to find out you know, what was really going on and what was driving these huge rent increases that um, he was seeing, uh, you know, and he was also priced out of a home in the area, so he's just feeling very frustrated. And the name RealPage kept prop- popping up in his research. And so he was the first, the first person I heard it from was an email to me. And uh, after that, I started poking around myself and found out that there was a, like, a lot more going on than I had uh, ever imagined. Today on the show, how one company's software is helping set prices for apartments across the country, and what happens when one of the most intimate aspects of our lives, our housing, no longer has a human touch. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Before I read Heather's story, I hadn't given all that much thought to how management companies set rents. My personal experience involved haggling with landlords or being mystified by what seemed like inexplicable decisions from whoever owned the building I lived in. And before the rise of rent-setting software, Heather says setting or raising prices was largely a human effort. What people told me in the industry was that what they used to do, and maybe in some cases still sometimes do, uh, is call around to competitors to find out how much they were charging. And in some instances, that can be problematic too. Uh, But it was a much more labor-intensive process, and they understood that they weren't always necessarily getting complete or accurate answers from their competitors if they didn't want to share the information. In the last decade, algorithms started playing a larger and larger role. RealPage, the company behind the proprietary rent-setting tool Yieldstar, is the dominant player in the industry. Yieldstar has been around since the mid-2000s, but RealPage truly expanded its reach five years ago after buying a rival price-setting company. RealPage offers a variety of real estate tech tools to its clients, but the rent-setting ones have been remarkably popular. And what it does is it um, considers a bunch of different uh, data feeds, essentially. Uh, one is it, one, it's going to look at the apartment in question that's being priced. It's going to look at things like the floor plan and the uh, number of bedrooms and things like that. And then it's going to look also at characteristics for the property, uh, what the history is perhaps of prices that they've gotten there, maybe occupancy. Uh, and then the, the thing that sets it apart perhaps is that it has um, a way for aggregated, anonymized market data uh, to be pulled in from the rent rolls from other landlords in the area former RealPage executives have told me is that it can look very granularly at what the prices are that people around this apartment are getting. And it will take that into consideration when deciding what to set, how to set the price for that apartment. Frankly, the use of the software isn't that surprising given the influence that other price-setting algorithms have in our daily lives. It's more how granular it is. So many other industries have some version of this. You have, you know, airfares and hotels and, you know, Amazon. And we're all kind of getting used to the fact that when we're shopping, it's not just us looking at a product that you've got this whole computer um, apparatus or data collecting and analyzing machine that's really looking over your shoulder when you're shopping. And so, you know, knowing that you have things like apartments.com and you have ways for tenants to shop at whatever level that they're, you know, able to afford, it it would make sense that there would be some kind of equivalent price-setting software. So I I guess I wasn't 100% surprised to hear that that existed, but some of the details about how it was working were, um, I guess, what kind of picked up my radar a little bit more. Heather says rent-setting software began to be popular in the late 2000s. By the middle of this decade, it was being used by some of the biggest property management companies in the country. That widespread use, especially for a product like RealPages, also increased its influence. Because once you understand how it works, you understand why it matters. If you have a lot of um, companies signed on to it, not only are they you know, consumers of the software in that they're using the pricing software, but they're also contributing their daily data. So the software is as, you know, the the supporters would say is becoming more accurate, but you're also understanding that it's um, perhaps having more influence the more data it's able to pull in. The pitch to property owners is pretty straightforward. 
A testimonial on RealPage's website says using the software helps find the sweet spot between charging too little, with albeit high occupancy rates, and charging too much. But the company also credits its software with making money for its clients. Yieldstar has definitely allowed us to focus more on our product and really tailor a quote to a person's needs without having to just immediately put a special on the front end and start talking about discounts right away. We're able to sell the whole product and then move into a custom-tailored quote. The people who really like this are the sort of management company people, the executives perhaps, who are overseeing, you know, who knows, 10,000, 20,000 apartments um, and often the investors who are behind them, who were providing the money to buy the apartments uh, and run them and perhaps flip them if it's a private equity type situation. So, you know, it provides a certain standardization and efficiency, and you know you're not going to have a leasing agent who's swayed by their emotions to not raise rents too much. Um, It sort of uh, lends a certain amount of you know, what they claim is is a sort of data science type approach to pricing uh, that they uh, say will take the errors out of pricing so that they don't underprice or they say overprice potentially. How widespread is its use? What we know is that RealPage said in 2020 that they have 31,700 clients or more, I think, actually. Uh, now, those are people who are using all of their services. So those, some of those might be just accounting clients, leasing clients. But the pricing software is a big part of what they're selling. Probably the thing that was most surprising to me was when I looked uh, up close in one zip code in Seattle, and I found out that... Um, you know, there's like 9,000 apartments in this one, you know, zip code in Belltown, Seattle, which is right, you know, in or near the downtown, essentially. And that uh, there were 10 property managers, the 10 biggest property managers were controlling 70% of the market, 70% of those apartments, uh, which was an astounding number. I mean, it, it, it just as a first point, it really shows you how concentrated the property management market can be in certain in certain markets. Um, but then when I started looking at all 10 of those property managers, every single one of them was using a version of the RealPage software. So, you know, we don't have a building by building survey, so we can't say it was used in every single building in the zip code, but we do know that all of them use the software in at least some of their buildings. And so potentially you could see how very easily um, it could be used by 70% or even more because, you know, we only did the top 10 and there were several dozen other property managers, who some of which were probably using it. How successful is the software in pushing up prices? RealPage claims that the software will help a landlord beat the market by 3 to 7%. Um, there's all kinds of testimonials on their site about, um, you know, Graystar, which is the biggest landlord in the country, property manager, they use it in some, though not all of their buildings. Uh, but they said uh, in a testimonial on RealPage's website that it helped them beat the market uh, by a significant amount in the buildings where it was used. It was more than four percent. So you know, it's it's clear that it's it's having having an impact. Trying to measure exactly how much is very difficult because it's very hard to sort of tease out and understand where where would rents be it's like a counterfactual if you know if this software wasn't being used where would rents be i was really struck in your reporting by 
how much companies and and manager types said that using this software maybe sometimes pushed them into places where they wouldn't necessarily have gone, but the software suggested that they go. I found that tension to be really fascinating. Yeah, that was a big theme in a lot of their marketing was if you trusted your gut, you never would have gotten this great return that you're going to get by using our software. I mean, it's it's like a, a repeated refrain, like again and again, it's going to push you to go places that you wouldn't otherwise go and, um, you know, how it's basically better than human judgment, essentially. Does that raise the question that maybe it takes human compassion out of the equation? There is still an opportunity if if a landlord wanted to, to challenge the recommendations that the software makes. They can um, potentially overrule a suggestion, although often the building staff have kind of a protocol that they need to go through if they want to reject a pricing recommendation. It's not super easy just to kind of ignore it, <laughs> from what I can tell, but it is also not making those decisions ulti- decisions ultimately. It's the property managers who are adopting the price. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how this then affects tenants and how it consequently affects neighborhoods. Yeah, you know, I've heard from a lot of tenants uh, concerned about uh, their rent going up very steeply. But I've also, since the story published, heard from a number of property managers who and I, you know, have said something similar from their end. And in particular, when buildings start to use this software, often it will push their rents very high very quickly. It's, it's sort of the algorithm people have told me is kind of learning and recalculating. Um, but there's also a way to view it as, well, maybe this is a building that was not making as much money as some of these surrounding buildings. The owners of the building may have understood that and are using the software essentially to catch up with the buildings around them and to to price at a level that's being achieved in other places very nearby. But I've, I've heard kind of again and again that it, it'll, you know, when it's first used, it'll sh- push the price really high. And then often there'll be a bunch of vacancies that result because of it, tenants leaving or people not coming out and renting right away. And, you know, that's obviously very dislocating for tenants who live in a building that goes through that um, and also concerning to a lot of the building staff. When we come back, all algorithms need data to perform. But when that data is from multiple competitors, what's the line between data gathering and price fixing? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There's a detail from your story that I found really fascinating. And I guess this is sort of some of the backstory of how this algorithmic pricing works, that this was designed by a man who first did this kind of work with airplane ticket pricing. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Jeffrey Roper was the principal scientist at RealPage for a a number of years. And way back toward the beginning of his career, he had actually started out working on revenue management software for airlines. He worked at Alaska Airlines. And he was involved in a type of software that allowed the airlines to essentially communicate with each other and sort of post potential price increases on this sort of private shared software so that they could um, see whether those prices were likely to be adopted or rejected by some of the competitors. And if they, if other people didn't match the price, they could, they could make a change um, and sometimes would. So apparently what the Department of Justice believed that this was improperly coordinating their pricing it sounds a lot like price fixing. And the Department of Justice thought so also and ended up reaching settlements or consent decrees with uh, with the airlines. But, you know, what Roper told me was that they had no idea that the technology had taken them to a place that had crossed the line at the time. It was a very sort of new thing. Um, and, you know, they came apparently and took his computer and some documents. And he said that they had no idea they were colluding at the time. I'm asking this question because, like all algorithms, RealPages software needs a lot of data to work successfully and to get better at what it does, right? Like the more inputs it has, the more kind of tailored and specific a recommendation it can spit out. And because so much competitor data is ingested, it really makes me wonder about the antitrust implications of all of this. Is there something similar happening here? Could you, could you read this as collusion? There are people who are asking questions about whether the software has crossed a line where it is, you know, likely to draw, in, you know, scrutiny from antitrust enforcers who do not want to see competitors working together to set prices in any way. Now, actually, how that would play out in the law is a very, very complicated question, especially when you get an algorithm involved, because no longer do you have a bunch of guys sitting around in a smoke-filled room with cigars deciding what the prices should be, which would, you know, form the traditional type of agreement that would be illegal and would be not easy. Right, that's a prosecutable case. Right. It's like you guys agreed together. You were in this room at this time with your cigars and you made this decision. But now we have this algorithm where the competitors aren't necessarily talking with each other. They are mostly talking with the company and their information is going in and it's, it's, you know, coming out as this uh, price recommendation. But there are still, you know, there are still some antitrust enforcers who have talked about similar situations or sort of hypotheticals in the abstract and said, that's not okay either. You can't have an algorithm basically acting like 
some middleman. Um, there was there was one um, former FTC uh, acting chairman, I think it was, who was saying, you know, basically sub in the word, sub, sub in the name Bob for algorithm. You can't have a guy named Bob sitting around taking everybody's private pricing information and then telling everyone where to set their prices. Like that would, that would be problematic too. So why, you know, if Bob can't do it, why can an algorithm? RealPage told Heather that its algorithm actually decreases the risk of price fixing because it removes the process of one competitor calling up another to personally gauge prices. The company said that its products, quote, prioritize a property's own internal supply-demand dynamics over external factors such as competitors' rents. Still, that doesn't mean that competitors aren't talking. Not just figuratively, but literally talking. RealPage has something it calls a user group, which is group a group of uh, clients who get together to help you know they're supposed to help improve the so- be helping to improve the software um, but one of the goals of the communication is for them to communicate more with each other to help each other and then improve the software that's sort of the stated purpose of these groups and there's two of the two subcommittees that deal with uh, revenue management with deal exactly with this topic and they meet um, annually at the conference in invitation only sessions uh, these private sessions apparently and they have quarterly conference calls. Um, And so, you know, this is something that an antitrust expert told me, you know, potentially could raise a red flag for antitrust. Are there guardrails in place to raise fair housing and discrimination questions? Because it seems like all the algorithm cares about, right, is, is how much money you can get for an apartment, not who lives there. Well, that's that's really interesting because one of the justifications for using an algorithm versus having people making these decisions, um, the company will say, and people like Roper will say, that this actually is a, a cure for bias because the computer doesn't see you know, your race, they don't see your gender, they don't see whatever else that a human sees that could lead to some sort of bias. Um and so they, you know, the company encourages people to adopt something it calls bottom line pricing, where you basically just take its recommendation and implement it and stick to your guns instead of negotiating with renters. It actually discourages negotiating with renters because it's, you know, they say that you that can, you know, introduce all those types of biases that could be problematic from a fair housing standpoint. But of course, we know it's like much more complicated. Right. Well, I was going to say, is there any data about who ends up in these apartments? And I haven't seen any. No. I mean, there is data. Um, I know RealPage has data. Their data arm occasionally will come out with some information. They had a, some study, a study over the summer that they were talking about. I think it was like 7 million lease transactions, new leases. Uh, and they had renter income data that was attached to those leases and, you know, came out with some findings. Uh, connected to that. So we know that they do have the data. Heather first learned about RealPage and her reporting on the private equity industry's growing ownership of rental housing. When apartments become basically spreadsheet entries, then increasing the rent on thousands of apartments in hundreds of buildings really starts to add up. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that private equity plays here, like what's happening in the background. Well, I mean, I think those stories kind of connect in that this is really, this type of software, again, is a way for um, 
a large landlord who has perhaps thousands of units in different states, uh, hundreds of buildings, if not thousands of buildings, to, you know, introduce some standardization in a sense into their process for setting rent so they don't have to worry about getting the right person in the seat in every single building because you always have the software to fall back on, which is doing this data collection and, you know, supposedly giving you a recommendation that is going to be um, putting you in a very favorable place in the market you're in. So I think like that is something that's very um, attractive to private equity-backed firms that are very concerned about the value of their asset and trying to raise that value uh, often fairly quickly in the matter of a few years if they're planning to sell again to get um, a payout essentially for their investors. Um, you know, they're not like a mom and pop who's looking at, hey, I'm going to have this apartment for the next 30 years. It's going to fund my retirement. It's going to be a steady stream of cash. I want good people who aren't going to destroy my building in, and I'm not going to, you know, raise the rent too much if if they turn out to be a good tenant or whatever. It's, it's, it's a different time horizon for private equity. It's often much shorter, and they often want to see a steeper increase in value more quickly. I was wondering if you have a sense of kind of how much rental property is controlled by these big landlords or big private equity-backed concerns, and how many of them use this kind of software? A lot of the biggest players are signed on to their software and have for years, and they, that's a statistic that they've you know bragged about um, before the company went private. Uh, they would talk about on earnings calls and things like that, uh, SEC filings. Um, in terms of private equity's role, I you know my earlier story, what I found was, you know I think you know a decade ago it they were around a third of the top fifty apartment owners in the country were backed by private equity. And more recently, it's become more than half, about half, slightly over half. So there's been an expansion in the market of these private equity-backed landlords. I can really see the appeal, right? If, If you want to maximize your investment in a short amount of time, and if you're a firm that might be planning to sell in a few years, like Yieldstar real pages software feels tailor-made for a company that wants to do that because you get to raise prices. You get to increase, you know, the the output of your investment. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I just want to point out, though, that RealPage is, while they've become very dominant in the market, they have not traditionally been the only software that was willing to do this. And they were doing things from what people are telling me a little differently than some of the other revenue management software that was not pulling in this, you know, often private market data at a very granular level, very close to the property and using that to inform the pricing. Um, there was another type of software called LRO or lease rent options um, that had a slightly different approach, uh, but also, you know, essentially was looking to, you know, optimize or maximize rents also. But, you know, Yieldstar ended up taking over a very large part of the market because they bought LRO in 2017. And the merger was scrutinized by the Department of Justice. It was given what's known as a second look, which means that there are some questions about the impact on competition. And there's at least a little bit more of a detailed look at 
um, whether this is a transaction that would, you know, do harm in the market or not. Uh, but ultimately, it was allowed to go through. I'm still interested in kind of what happened there and, and how it how it came to be that essentially RealPage was allowed to buy their biggest competitor. The role of algorithmic pricing is incredibly relevant at a moment when rents in the U.S. have been repeatedly breaking records. Back in June, a report from Redfin showed that nationally listed rents rose 15% over the previous year. And the median listed rent for an available apartment crossed $2,000 a month for the first time. There are some signs things might be abating a little as the Federal Reserve tries to fight inflation. Realtor.com showed a small dip in prices in August, the first since November of last year. But rents across the country are still high. Yeah, we are in a moment where housing prices, rental prices, are incredibly high. There is a lack of affordable housing in almost every major metro area in the country. And at the same time, a lot of people had this moment during the earlier parts of the pandemic where maybe they were getting a break on their rent. There was, you know, the moratorium. And I think it just feels maybe doubly shocking that there's some algorithm out there doing its work, not thinking about that you may have had a hard time with your job in the past couple of years. And like, it's a little tough to make the rent. Yeah, you know, that's right. And I, you know, you'll hear from supporters of the software that it will drop prices if there's a market downturn, if demand is falling off. But at the same time, you know, I one of the people I heard from who's in the story I wrote, you know, she was renting right at the beginning of the pandemic in Boston. And even though people were fleeing the city, her landlord, who uses a version of this type of software, um, you know, tried to raise her rent. And she was like, that's crazy. There's people who are leaving. There's a pandemic going on. I said, this was just the first few weeks. And the landlord was telling her that the market rate for her apartment was 6.5% higher than what she was paying. She found a way to work around it. She was able to move to another unit within uh, the building, apparently. So, you know, we know that rents dropped during the pandemic in a lot of places. But, you know, what tenants have told me is that uh, there were a lot of instances where some of these larger landlords were trying to hold on to those high rates for a long time, that they were reluctant to drop them and that there were a lot of vacancies in their building because of it that were just not being filled. Why do you think this story has resonated the way that it has? I just think there's a lot of people who are having a difficult time making ends meet with their rent and that to have pricing that jumps the way that this pricing can when it's it's done this way it can make sudden jumps and also you know if you're walking into a building and trying to to rent it um you know the price may only be good for a, a 24 or 48 hours or whatever and then it's going to change again so you don't have any time to really think about you know, can I afford this? Is this, you know, look around and is there anywhere else that costs less? And so tenants are under an incredible amount of pressure when they're looking for a new apartment and then they get hit with renewals. They may not want to move and they're getting, seeing the rent, you know, pushed up again. And so I think this has just become, you know, this is obviously these are always been kind of tenants woes, but right now I think people are feeling them very 
intensely in some markets, and that's really bubbled a lot of frustration to the surface. Heather Vogel, thank you so much for your time and for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me on. Heather Vogel is an investigative reporter for ProPublica. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of Audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. That means you get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.